Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists, talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guest, Jill Barber. So this conversation with Jill was really great. I had this idea that this is the second episode of the sort of second season of Salad Days, and I thought, okay, we got Grant, we've got to get Jill, um, two different people that from my musical history, two different sort of uh, completely different paths. Grant's someone that I know playing with the Inbreds uh, way back and many things since, but Jill was completely different, more of the Zunior era. And uh, um, who would have thunk that the two of them would end up getting together and getting married? And I thought, man, this could be really good to kind of uh, bring this all together and go for a nice one-two to, to kick off the uh, the season here in 2024. And I hope you enjoy it. And I was very, uh, very happy to uh, really dig into the background and go deep with the, uh, I'd say, your indie history, making music here in Canada and a bunch of different places, including the East Coast and Kingston. But here it is Jill Barber on Salad Days. But I, I do, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a little bit addicted to podcasts. So anyway. I'm, I'm I do it when I dog walk and also when I make lemonade, believe it or not. I do believe it. And yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, anyway, I love yours. It's a great. Um, Thank you. Great. It's a great new podcast discovery for me. <laughs> Good. To be on it is even better. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's jump in. The, the first thing I like to ask about or talk about is a point of common connection that we have. So I was pondering, I went for my bike ride today. I was pondering uh, the various things that we've uh, interconnected over the years, but my mind goes to the album, uh, A Note to Follow So, and the early days of Zunior. Uh, so um, when I first started it, there was, again, 20 years ago, actually, believe it or not, there were some initial bands that had uh, releases that would go on and um, they would just somehow blow up. Like they would get, like an example would be the weather station got a review on NPR. All of a sudden it was their first EP. It, it was like, it was selling on Zinger. People were talking about all this kind of stuff. Another one was Dan Mangan when he was fully independent on his first album. He got one specific review. So for me, I'm out doing my day to day and my Blackberry or whatever it was then would blow up with all these, these notes. And I'd say, this is very cool. Mm-hmm. And so for some reason, I'm pretty sure something like that happened with that album for you. I don't know if you remember that or if you know that, but there was something at some point with your record that kind of like made it sort of uh, rise above. And so to me, that was probably when I really became uh, aware of everything you were doing, plus the connection with dependent records, which I'd also like to get a bit more background on that. Yeah. But what, so what do you, do you think, do I have that right? Was there something with that first album or EP or whatever? I don't know if there was like a big review or anything. Um, I, I I remember like one of the moments for me where I was like, oh, um, something's happening with this album was when I first heard my song be played on DNTO. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I remember that. On CBC yep. radio. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. I don't know if, I don't know if that was the inciting uh, incident that's, that led to the blow up on Junior, but um, <laughs> I love that that album lives on Zunior still. It's like, it's, uh, it's definitely like I, when I think like, it's kind of off, it's very off the radar. My, yeah. when I think of my, all the albums I've made, that one was kind of almost like a pre-album. Like it wasn't. Yeah. I, I totally get it. I, I totally understand. And it's, and that's something we can get into all of the, all, obviously all the things you've done um, with your music, but that's the one I think of. I just think of those, that's when you came into my, you know, sort of field of view. And one of the first, I'm not sure the first time we met, but I definitely remember that there was the one um, inbred show or sorry, not, not inbreds. It was a um, junior, uh, like almost like Christmas party, your show when you were in Toronto. And I remember you came to at the horseshoe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that was, that was also, uh, you know, again, just, you know, many things over the years, but those, those are some of the inner, earliest uh, connections that I recall, but 
Well, I can go back further than that because, of course, like long before you knew who the hell I was, I was a big Inbreds fan. Well, this this is the Kingston thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I yeah, for sure. Because you were, you were, and what did you study at Queens? Philosophy. So you did. So I see. I have a philosophy minor as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, a business degree and then a philosophy minor. So that was that was, um, you know, I don't know. It comes in handy somewhere, doesn't it? Smart. Where did you- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So um, yeah, we're both using our degrees in, in a way. Yeah, some <laughs> some way, shape, or form. I, I enjoyed it though. I really did. It was good. Um, but okay, so let's go to the first. We'll call it the uh, "What's on the stove?" question. So uh, the goal here is to go back and and get a sense of what things were like for you when you were first getting into music and the how and why. So we're going back to your house. Uh, actually, no, I, I'm missing. I'm missing that first question. So just first, tell us when, uh, where did you grow up, and where you're calling from today? I grew up in Port Credit, Ontario. Okay. Port Credit's a, a town in in the greater Mississauga, um, you know, municipality of Mississauga. But Port Credit was a pretty sweet little town to grow up in. Um, and I am now living in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I've lived for 16 years. So I'm calling you today from sunny Vancouver. Okay, cool, cool. So if we're back in Port Credit and it's a Friday night, Saturday night at your at your house, um, Give us a sense of uh, what's going on, and maybe specifically the, the question that I ask is is something that's maybe on the stove in the oven, something that you remember from fondly from your uh, growing up on a weekend. Yep. So my parents were very sweet, and they had a Friday night tradition of steak. My my mom would make steak, and they would have a candlelight steak dinner at cool. home. Just like a di- like a date night, wow! Husband and wife date night at home, so they would make steak dinner. And the reason why I loved that was because um, before that they would pick up, they would pick up McDonald's, <laughs> and um, my brother and I would get to have our like McDonald's, and we would be kind of sent to the basement to watch a movie, and we'd have our like McDonald's and watch a movie. That's that it's sounds very, like it's not very wholesome. I I listened to some some previous podcasts where people had like really wholesome experiences. Mine was mine was all about about McDonald's on a Friday night. I, I that sounds win win to me though, uh, as far as the family dynamic, because probably everybody's really happy with that. Everyone was really happy with that. So that's kind of what what happened on Friday nights in my household. Okay, okay. So um, when you went downstairs, what kind of things were you watching? What were the movies? What were the shows? Uh, you know, whatever Rogers video new releases. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what were we watching? Okay. Batman, um, dirty dancing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess when I was really like in the eighties, nineties films, what did I, I don't know. Batman was a big one. Okay. So, so you mentioned, you mentioned your brother that we have to, we have to talk about the musical connection between yourself and Matt and your family. Help, help me understand um, you know, again, how the two of you, how and when the two of you started playing and how that might relate to, again, the kind of music that maybe your parents were playing in the house. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my big brother, Matthew Barber is also a professional musician. Um, my, my poor parents, they got, they had two chances and they got two musicians in the family. Yeah. Um, so, and my parents are very much not musical. Um, so it was a bit of a shock to them that Matt and I um, followed the career paths that we did. Musically, like they had records in the house. They, but they were, you know, they, it was like the Beatles. Um, Neil Young was a big musical influence on all of us. Um, my parents both grew up in Winnipeg. So I feel like. Yeah. If there was a soundtrack to my household growing up, it would be Neil Young for sure. Um, we listened to a lot of Blue Rodeo. Um, that was a, that was played a lot. Um, Crash Test Dummies were played. Sure. Uh, like the real Canadiana. Um, and are we talking? Uh, are we talking vinyl, cassette, or um, CDs? Well, all all of the above. Yeah. 
definitely like there was vinyl played, but then I, I, I seem to recall when CDs became like the new thing. And uh, so then we started to build up our compact disc. Yeah, me too. But, uh, but yeah, no, it definitely started like when I think back to my childhood, one little, um, one memory I have from my childhood growing up is uh, Matt and I went through a phase. I don't know if I was driving it. I think it might've been me where um, every night um, as we went to bed, I would request that my parents put on this one record. Okay. And it was the record that we would fall asleep to. And I guess they would just like put it on in the living room, but Matt and I could both hear it playing in our bedrooms. And what that record was that helped us fall asleep <laughs> all records was this soundtrack the chariots of fire oh wow for whatever reason they're like da 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 yeah, <laughs> the music that I, I like to fall asleep to i can't explain it very uplifting yeah and then another <laughs> another kind of musical memory tied to my brother was uh matt for christmas gave me a CD of Joni Mitchell Blue when I, I I feel like I was probably 14 years old. Okay, wow. And Matt for Christmas gave me that that gift. And that um, to this day is the record, my top record of my life to this day, Joni Mitchell Blue. So yeah, at age 14 was when I really connected with that record and I've it's it has staying power. Yeah, that's obviously uh, a classic. I, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by um, for these conversations. A lot of times, the musician in the family is the like the last. Like I'm, so I'm the last of seven kids, and it came up several times that the last. But you know, with just two of you in the family, what I wonder was, which one of you picked up an instrument first, and what was it? Was it just guitar that was in the house, or did one of you get one and you kind of shared it or something like that? Well, I feel like, you know, my parents, they, they really believed in providing Matt and I with like really well-rounded education and lots of opportunities. So of course they did that very traditional thing and registered us both in piano lessons when we were little kids. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, Matt maybe did it a little longer than me. I did it for a couple of years and then I just, I, I just quit. I wasn't into it. I did. So my first experience with music came in the form of piano lessons but you know there was a woman who was like in her 90s who taught us mrs gardner and she was and it just was like it it didn't feel that it didn't feel very fun to me yeah it felt like work and uh and i didn't really enjoy it so both matt and i ended up kind of quitting our piano lessons when we were kids and we both came back to music as teenagers and it was when matt first matt um, asked for a guitar for Christmas and he got a guitar, started learning. And because I grew up really looking up to my brother, I still look up to him, but I, I've always looked up to him, but I really did yeah. when I was a teenager. He was my big brother, a big influence on me. He started learning how to play guitar. I wanted to learn how to play guitar. And it was Matt really that taught me a few chords and let me borrow his guitar. And Pretty much both Matt and I, as soon as we could string a few chords together, we we both started writing songs, writing our own songs, yeah. uh, very much influenced by the bands that we were getting into and, and, and loving original music. So we both started writing original music when we were teenagers. So we started, he started first, I started shortly after, and neither of us have ever stopped from when we were, when I was like yeah. 16 and he was 16 or 17. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I, my equivalent was getting um, sort of roped into doing trumpet lessons. And okay. I found it, same thing, I found it work, uh, except for the one song. You were singing Chariots of Fire. I'm trying to think, what was the song? I think it was the theme from A-Team. Yeah. Uh, that was the song that was really fun to play on on trumpet. Everything else I hated. It was too much work. So I did that for a couple of years and stopped before I kind of found, you know, the drum. It was actually guitar that I started first, but then kind of fell into the drums. And uh but it, you know, it's interesting because like, there's that that family connection is always there somehow with music. It seems there's always some kind of, um, you know, uh, whether it's again just the like literally the instruments that are in your house. Like, do you remember what was the first instrument that you uh, were like was your own? You know what I mean? Was like that you 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 bought with your own money or that you were given? Do you still have it, by any chance? 
Yeah, um, I don't have my very first guitar. I I must have traded it in for another guitar, but I it was an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Um, that my wonderful parents, you know, like purchased for me. I mean, I have to say my parents were very, you know, they supported our passions and, um, you know, back when or our hobbies, back when they just thought it was a hobby. Little did they know we would never stop. But, um, but yeah, it for me, it was my acoustic guitar. I actually remember the feeling of walking down the street carrying a guitar in a case. Yeah. I felt I felt like a superhero. Yeah. I felt so yep. cool. Yeah. Carrying the guitar <laughs> down the street. I was just like to me it was just like I just felt cool. I felt like I'm a musician. I'm a musician. I'm cool. So I, I really kind of I think Matt too, like I think part of our motivation to learn how to play was to kind of like be cool or something. But um Yeah. Uh but we also just we loved we loved making music. We loved making up songs. And I, I had a hilarious uh, version of that happen to me, where I did all these years with the Inbreds, and as a drummer, obviously you don't carry your drums around. Uh, but many years later, I did this side uh, thing called Egger, and I did it with recording out at Don Kerr Studio in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And to get there, I would have to take the subway. And so this is me as like I don't know how old am I. I want to say 35 or whatever, but I'm actually carrying a guitar on the subway. And I had at 35, I think that same feeling that you had, I was like, I felt like a cool guy carrying a guitar. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I still kind of feel cool carrying a guitar. <laughs> How do you not feel cool carrying a guitar? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, so you're starting to, uh, you're starting to play and you've, you know, you, you're starting to do, it sounds like originals pretty early, which was very true for, like myself and Mike, we we kind of got into it early because pretty much because I've heard this about you too. Like they 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 couldn't like play. It was too hard to play covers sometimes. So they would just make up their own songs. Mm-hmm. And that was true for us. Meaning like we kind of got we were inspired by stuff like REM or even you too. But making originals was something that um we did almost right off the bat in recording. For us it was four tracks. Did you get a chance to do some early recording? Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of segueing leading into the track that we're going to play here. But were you able to record um, some of these originals, um, you know, in, in those in your early high school or type type age? Yes, I did. I made a tape on a on a four track that we rented. Um, yeah. And uh, I made a tape, and it was probably I think it had six or seven songs on it. You know, side A, side B. Yeah. Cassette. And um, I played all the instruments. And like, I, play, actually, I did play drums. On my That's own. cool. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of just like hitting a cymbal. But um, yeah, I played all the instruments, recorded my own vocals, like my own harmony vocals as well. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, um, and I, and I sold it to my friends. I think I, I think that I maybe printed 30 copies of my, of my first cassette, but I, I made the artwork, you know, you know, like I, I, photocopied it, I cut it all out by hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and, and was this, was this in high school? Was this in high school still? I was in high school. Yes. Cool. I was probably 16, 15, 16. Yeah. That's that, Well, that's really cool. We're going to, I'm going to use that as the segue to lead into, because I'm assuming what happens is you end up, of course we, we both uh, have a Kingston connection. The, yes. the, the inbred started in Kingston. We both went to Queens and the song that we're going to play is um, something that you made. Oh, it's a live recording from the grad club, which is, which is just one of the, one of the venues that you could possibly play at Queens. And it's, it would be an acoustic type setup. And this is an acoustic song and the song is in the road. And here it is.
to just tell you too, I had no idea that this song was ever recorded. I did not make the recording. Oh yeah. So big shout out to Roy Ellis, who was, is an old friend of my brother's who lives in Halifax. And about three or four years ago, he sent me, uh, he, he said, Hey, I found something that I think you should have. And it's this cassette of you playing um, at the open mic night at Queens at, at, at the grad club. And I said, Oh my God, yes, please. And he sent it to me. And what's really special about that performance is it's actually the first ever public performance that I ever did. Uh, cool. Prior to that, it was, I only had played at like house parties for my friends. Like that was really the, that was the first time I played for strangers uh, on a stage that recording. So anyway, and the funny thing is, is that he's this, Roy sent me this tape four or five years ago and I didn't even have a cassette player. So I just kind of threw it in my drawer. Yes. Yes. My 10 year old son asked for, for Christmas this year. Oh, no way. Cassette player. (laughs) Yeah. He got, so he wanted a cassette player. So, um, my sister-in-law, his aunt got him a cassette player and, uh, and when you asked for an embryonic track, I was like, oh, that cassette in my drawer, I can finally play it. So I, I went into my kid's bedroom and put it on his tape player. And- uh, you know what? That's a common theme for some of these songs is that people have cassettes and they can't find a way to, to play them. I, I only have one cassette player in, in my entire existence. And I've had the occasion of finding some, in fact, very bizarrely the other day, I, I found a, a cassette tape. Um, I think it's actually recorded over an old inbreds cassette and it's, it's karaoke. It's, it's Helen and I, my wife, Helen doing karaoke, pretty weird. And I don't even remember when it was from, but, but that's the thing about cassettes. Yeah. They just go in a drawer and then, and then they come out whenever. Yeah. Um, but speaking to the song though, like, so, okay, so let's, I want to get into the, uh, because one of the things that's really interesting about it is because, because of, I mean, you have so much uh, ground that you cover in your career musically in terms of the the styles and and the the I say musical growth and changes that you've had over 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 the years, but you think of this as being your first performance. The song is great, but you can hear. I think I just mentioned this too before in in email that you can just sort of hear that you're still getting, um, you know, used to the idea of the stage and and playing guitar and singing and having people watching you. Can you? Does it almost take you back to that day when you listen to that song? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I hear myself, it's, it's me, but I just like, I definitely don't think I sound like a great singer or anything. And what that tells me is, is it's kind of like, I feel like one big motivator for writing my own songs is I would write, I've I've always written songs that work for my own voice. And I also hear like a, a bit of a lack of control in in my voice okay. in that recording, and then I and I kind of just think it 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 like lends credence to that whole kind of ten thousand hour thing. Like yeah. I think I think I just I I I was a new singer. Like I I wasn't. I obviously could sing the song, and I think I've always had like a generally like a natural kind of sense of being able to sing in key. Um, but in terms of like getting a handle on my own voice and controlling it and knowing how to use it, like, like an instrument, that's just taken years of practice and, yeah. and just like hours of learning of just singing my own songs. And so I don't know, it's like, it's interesting. Like I, I just feel like maybe some, there might be some singers where you listen to early recordings and they're kind of like, you can tell that they're going to be great singers. I, I definitely don't hear that in that recording. Um, but I, you know, I think I'm a good singer for what I do now because I'm very experienced and I, not that I could sing any song, but I can sing my own songs. So. Do, you, do you remember, um, you know, cause the grad club is a small space, uh, you know, and was there, was it like, did many people hear that or was it like kind of like a, you know, golf clap kind of situation or was it your friends there? What do you remember about that show? Uh, there was a, probably a dozen people there. 
yeah. including my brother, Roy Ellis, um, and yeah. then, you know, like a handful of other people that walked in with their guitar and wanted to sing songs. It was not a very big crowd, but it was a big deal to me. It was a big deal that I did that. And I, I felt like, uh, I was a, I was someone who could perform in public after that. And, and, and not long after that, I walked into a coffee shop in my neighborhood in Port Credit and said, Hey, can I, can I play here sometime? And then I ended up getting like a weekly gig at the local coffee shop. So okay. that open mic night was a, was a turning point for me. Absolutely. Sure. Okay. Let, let's talk. I want to, let me ask you a few like Kingston questions because, uh, so of course, uh, the inbreds, you know, for us, we, um, we were both at, I was at, at Queens. Mike was at Queens. Um, we had this idea for, uh, you know, a, we tried a bunch of things to play. We had a band in high school, but at Queens, we were trying to get something together and this two piece thing kind of happened. But speaking of Kingston, the things that were really great when we were there was everything from the grad club to the toucan to, um, I don't know if it was, Alfie's was still a club there, but there's a lot of places to play, but then there was CFRC and that was a great opportunity to get your music played on the air. And then we, you could get write-ups in the Queens journal and in general, as a city, not just over and beyond the school, it was, I think a good, and it is to this day, obviously a great uh, music town. Yeah. Um, during your, when you were there, what of those things maybe that I just mentioned or others really benefited you in Kingston? Well, yeah, um, all of those things, all of those things. So, so um, I first arrived, you know, like so many students do. I lived in residence and I, w I did play kind of coffee houses in, in the residences that they hosted. Um, from there, I, I, I formed a band. Uh, we were called Bent Ivy. Okay. And uh, we would play gigs at the old Wellington, like it was yes. Wellington and then the Scherzo. Yeah. Um, we would have gigs there, uh, played the Toucan, um, played Battle of the Bands at Queens. As uh, did we. Yep. In fact, uh, I remember one year we played with the band Bedouin Sound Clash. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm friends with Jay Malinowski from that band. He, he lives out in BC and, and we- Right, right about our battle of the bands days at queens <laughs> so i did that uh, but i certainly i did get um coverage in the queen's journal and cfrc was big i would often go in and play songs or be a guest on people's shows um that was yeah that was huge so kingston was a really a great town to kind of get my legs as a, a singer songwriter performer yeah and, and were you you were there the full four years and all that you know and did it was it just kind of building each year musically in, yeah, in addition, I was yeah. There, i was there for four years i didn't even return home in the summers i like i stayed in kingston i worked i worked at lots of legendary uh haunts i worked at the sleepless goat cafe for anyone yeah. who remembers the goats yeah, for sure I worked at pan chancho the bakery yes. i was a yes. night i was like a dishwasher and night baker <laughs> so oh you know like, what Th that's another one that comes up a lot in this podcast is people that had dishwashing jobs and how versatile it can be it really can be you know <laughs> yeah that was one of my jobs there and so anyway yeah like um kingston will always be one of my special homes you know in, in my life like i i just i really made a home of that town when i was there and mm. felt a lot of I felt a lot of support from that community too. Like it's, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm itching. I'm itching to go to the segue on this, to go to the next part of it, what I call music becoming real, because I kind of want to understand the point at which uh, was, so um, you're there in Kingston for four years. You're doing all these uh, interesting jobs, which a bunch of them I did too as well. Uh, but where does the first um, kind of like break happen? Like the I used to put this question in terms of where was the point in your 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 build where you, something a single thing happened that made you think this music is something that's not just for fun something that I might actually could do for for a long time and of course you're still doing it today like tell me is was that point at all in Kingston and or help me understand the segue from 
because um, there are a lot of opportunities in Kingston in terms of other, whether it's connecting with other artists, all those names you mentioned. For us, it was like the Tragically Hip were very helpful. Um, and was there, like, was there a Kingston connection to the music becoming real for you? I think Kingston was really just where I grew and had time to be a student who also wrote songs. I, I, I don't know if there was a big moment for me. I think throughout my entire Kingston time, I was like, this is great. This is fun. I'm a musician, but ultimately here I am getting my degree. And when I graduate, I'm going to have to go out into the world and get a job. Right. I believe that I, that was my belief the whole time. It was still in like pipe dream territory when I lived in Kingston. Yep. Um, at the very end of my time in Kingston as a student, I recorded a note to follow. So my pre album, I say like the, the first, yes. really it was an album that I made. It was um, my, a friend of mine produced it. Uh, his name is Niall Fines, and he really encouraged me to, record some of my songs. So I think maybe we did it on an eight track. <laughs> we graduated from the eight track. track. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> and I basically, it was like an eight track bedroom recording okay. that I made, I believe in 2002, which was the year that I graduated um, from Queens. And then, yep. and then I, and then I was out in the world and I had this, I had this recording that I, again, like I, manufactured myself and I like hand screen printed covers and cut them out and glued them by hand. Like it was still very DIY, but I had, I had that album, a note to follow. So, and then I, I ended, I ended up in Halifax, kind of like yes. Mike actually. Mike That's right. Similar trajectory. So yes, yes. I, uh, and um, I, I, I won't, I'll gloss over the, that whole story, but I ended up going tree planting uh, that summer. Okay. After I graduated from Queens, and that changed the course of uh, course of things. And I found myself sort of chasing someone out in Halifax. So I, I, I arrived in Halifax. I didn't know anybody, but I did have this new record, newish recording that I'd made. And one of the first uh, places I dropped it off was CBC Halifax. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did get a call from the CBC, from a, a, a local show, their local radio show. It was called Atlantic Airwaves. And there's a, the producer yeah. of that show was a guy named Glenn Meisner. And he called me in for an interview to interview me about that album and play some songs from it on the show. And after, the, after it, he turned the mics off and we weren't rolling, he said, like, he, he kind of offered me an opportunity um, to, to come in back into, uh, studio, they had a studio at CBC Halifax called studio H, which was like this <clears throat> legendary recording studio. Okay. And this was, so this was back in the day when CBC had a budget to record yeah. talent. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Feels like a distant, distant yeah. memory now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But I was, I, I have to tell you, Dave, like that was the, turning point for me yeah um because something as legitimate as the cbc um kind of wanted to come on and record an album for me invest in my career um and play and and the whole idea was that they record an album in order to play it on the radio and so that's that was that was a big moment for me so that happened in, in the early days when I was living in Halifax in 2002, 2003. Yeah. The, um, another, again, the connection to, um, dependent, uh, records. Yes. I just remember because when, you know, winter sleep known for Brian Borchard, some mm -hmm. of that stuff, again, those were early, um, junior days for me. And one of the things about, it was like, again, because the inbreds, you know, we have a Halifax connection as well. We didn't record it that CBC. We did record in CBC Montreal with a similar, you know, goal. They would do these sessions with Brave New Waves. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they gave, if you actually got a whole record out of it, that's amazing. Um, uh, but the connection with Dependent, um, I just remember seeing like a lineup of the bands, and I was aware of your music. And then I was like, where does Jill fit into this? How did how did the Dependent connection happen? Was that just part of that, or was that separate from? I don't I don't even know. Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, because I, I was a little bit. It was a pretty kind of like rock. It was like a rock. Rock. Yeah. Label. yeah. <laughs> and, 
Uh, but Dave, you know, I mean, I think you know and understand, like, I might be a like a folky or a jazzy artist, but like, I have a very indie yeah. spirit. Yeah, you do. Like, I grew up as a teenager going to all ages shows in Toronto, um, rock shows. So I like I, I'm I identify a lot with the indie musicians that were um, that were on that label on dependent. And um, I just became friends with those guys. And, and they kindly invited me to, to, to release my music under, under, you know, under the supportive banner of dependent music. Like they, it was just a, it was a community of friends and they recognized that that they could help support me. And um, I think they were just looking to kind of diversify their, their roster. I, I, th I thought it was really cool that you were part of it. Like, honestly, like I was like, this is cause, because I was just starting to become aware of some of the stuff they were doing mm -hmm. and separately your thing. And it was just, I was like, man, this is, this is awesome. You know? Yeah, it, it was. And that I did my first tour across Canada in like a 10 passenger van where nine of nine of, the other nine were like guys, like rock wow. and roll, like guys in a rock and roll band. And then me opening the shows, solo acoustic. And they were really cool to have me on. And it, I had just like an amazing experience with all those guys. They were great. And um, I mean, yeah, I feel really lucky. I, I think I just, I, uh, I always kind of felt like a little bit of uh, like one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. That's okay. I didn't, they didn't really mind and I didn't mind. So it was great. Okay. So, and because, because we have, we have a bunch of uh, different uh, connections over the years. Kingston is one of them, but one of them is, is generally everybody at outside and the connection at outside music, which is we had, a, the inbreds had a connection with outside before I was doing anything with Zunior mm -hmm. and Lloyd and everybody there was, you know, this, the, the, because I believe uh, dependent was distributed by outside. How did, how did the connection to um both well both to, to outside and you know your, your whole management team how did that when did that come to happen was that was that shortly after that time or it was around the same time when i released that album it was called oh heart so that's the album i recorded that's the one that's the yeah. one that dependent released and that was the album where i started working with evan newman who has been my manager for all these years yeah um and um uh, Evan first found Matt playing uh, his songs in Toronto. And this was back in the day. Evan was kind of fresh out of like music business school and was looking to team up with artists. So, so Evan started working with Matt and um, through Matt, he discovered my music. And so he started kind of just giving me advice, um, friendly advice, but then it kind of, I don't, it kind of morphed into a, a working relationship that, that carries on today as in like, yeah. I had like an hour long phone conversation with Evan before, before this zoom call, like he, Evan has been my longtime manager and partner in my career. And, and then the connection with outside is so, uh, so he was my manager first and then he was hired on to work for outside music, the label. And now he's, you know, um, helps own the label. He's a, like a shareholder and owner in the label. And I've been on outside music all these years, ever since I was on the, on dependent music. Like, I feel like I've had sort of a side, almost like a sidebar, um, window into some of the things that you've been doing over the years, uh, when it was like, you were getting ready to do, you know, records with big orchestration, or you're going to do a French language one or. I, I feel like I had this view through Lloyd and maybe through Evan. I'm just hearing about, Oh, Jill's going to do this. So we're thinking about doing that. And I always, it was very, it was very cool to almost, it was, it was like getting a, like um, an advance, you know, you know, like looking at the crystal ball for some of the things that you did and, and the way you went, you did these such big records, you know? And um, cause again, I'm coming from an era where I, I, this, this album, a note to follow. So and acoustic and I, I see you changing and I see you, um, you know, growing into all those roles and doing these big shows and, and touring around the world. Um, 
and the again like the connection with outside because because I've I've had a partnership with the Mazunia for years and I've, like I said I've Lloyd and outside distributed the inbreds the first our first album Hilario mm-hmm. so it kind of we have this kind of connection going way back with outside but another one that we have is um is the vinyl cafe mm-hmm. in Stuart McLean so that was for me it was through outside that there was a point where Lloyd connected me with I remember that very first phone call with Stuart and he wanted someone to be to basically kind of manage his store. Mm-hmm. So Zunior became the store for everything to this day, everything related to the Vinyl Cafe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've seen many of the uh, Vinyl Cafe live shows over the years. And I'm pretty sure that I saw the tour that you played with them. And I know that, you know, you have like, it's just been, you know, you've had all kinds of great things that have come out of your connection with the Vinyl Cafe. But what, what, what do you, what are, what's your memories of those the times on tour, just hanging out, whatever, you know, with, with, yeah. with Jess and, and, sure. and Stuart. Um, well, uh, I had a great time. I did a, I did a couple of long tours with the, with the vinyl cafe and um, I have a lot of love, a lot of love for Stuart. Um, he was such an interesting guy, kind um funny and curious yeah kind of, a, kind of a curious guy like i i don't know i, I was he was a, he was um he was a really special really unique character and and um i feel like he was a real mentor to me he had a a real way of I feel like I took a lot of performance notes from Stuart. Yeah. Yeah. And night after night witnessing um, how he, how he kind of like held the audiences in the palm of his hand was really something to behold. Um, And I, I just had a great time being part of that cast. The other musicians on the bill were great. John Sheard and, and Dennis Pendrith that were the kind of the longstanding house band. Yeah. Yeah. They were great to play with. And then of course it was a huge opportunity to be exposed to his audiences and like overflowing sold out theaters of, of CBC listeners that were very ready to kind of receive my music. I, I definitely um, think one of the things about Stuart that is, like from the like let's call it like the indie side or maybe the indie music side that we come from is how much he really very sincerely as a music lover but uh, i mean all types of music but he was such a supporter of at the indie level in canada and you know he had of course he had his his, his team that helped him connect with some of the, the artists right but uh, julie penner right I mean, um, I'm, I'm still good, fr- really good friends with Julie Penner. I bet, I bet. I've been in touch with Jess actually recently, and um, Jess was an amazing producer too. I mean, she was. If anyone knows anything about behind the scenes of the Vinyl Cafe, she was kind of pulling all the strings. Yeah. And, um, she was. She's an amazing producer. Um, but yeah, that whole that whole crew that whole crew was amazing. It was really. It's it's really. I still feel so sad that uh, we lost Stuart. Yeah far too soon. I do have one little anecdote that I'll share. Okay. Um, I, I was on tour with the Vinyl Cafe and with Stuart when I um, was engaged to be married. And I purchased my wedding dress while I was on one of those tours uh, at a um, okay. bridal store <laughs> in Victoria. And Stuart was there and I showed it to him and he was like, approved the wedding dress and anyway um i said well listen I'll, i'm going to invite you to the wedding it'd be fun to have you come and so and i didn't really know if Stuart was going to come or not and i think i think he was kind of a like he he maybe maybe like two or three weeks before we were set to get married i hadn't heard from him but then he he sent me a note and he said i'm going to be there so he no came out to vancouver yep he <laughs> he came out to vancouver um to my wedding to grant this was in 2010 yeah. And uh, we were really honored to have him there. And I remember, you know, we said our vows and we were kind of like, we had had our first kiss as a married couple and we were holding hands and we were doing kind of that, that joyful walk 
um, yep. back down the aisle and there were, you know, where you walk past people on either side, but there was also a balcony. Okay. I just remember looking up the balcony and Stuart was just the face that I saw. Um, kind of like sort of this godlike figure um, just standing right above us, kind of um, anointing us. That's amazing. <laughs> with, blessing us with his presence and uh, just a big smile on his face. And um, it was, I just like have a, a very vivid memory of having just gotten married, looking up to that balcony and seeing Stuart there. So that was pretty great. If you ever needed proof that he was the real deal, that's that's a great image right there. I love it. Absolutely. No, that's well, that's very cool. I also think that you talk about like learning um, sort of performance tips. Like I saw, I don't know how many shows you probably saw more of you on tour with him, but I got a chance to see quite a few in Toronto and Hamilton. And there were, there were little ways that he would just kind of move his body. That was very interesting. It was almost like he was some combination of somewhere between Gord Downey, Tom York, you know, I don't know, Robert Plant, maybe out of these little ways of moving himself. He, he was almost like a, he kind of came across maybe like a, uh, like a, a really, like he always had a professorial vibe about him, but the way that he moved was more like a stage, a stage person, or maybe yeah. even Charlie Chaplin or something like that. Like he had these different totally. little moves, right? Yep. Um, he gave little, like he gave like with his body, he would give cues to the audience too. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is yeah. something like get ready to laugh or like, yeah, I, I remember different things. Yeah. The way he moved his body was very, it was skillful and intentional and it worked. Well, I, I love, I love that he was at your wedding. I'm not sure I knew that, but that's a great story. Uh, and it makes me want to do the, 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 the final segment, which is flash forward. Let's, cause this is, this is good. So let's, let's talk a bit about some of the things that you're doing today. Obviously um, I think I said this when I talked to Grant a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, I like following basically both of your feeds on Instagram and meeting you both in the summer in Prince Edward County at my lemonade stand, watching your kids grow up. It's so cool. And watching like the different, you mentioned the the cassette thing before with your son. And I've noticed this kind of the way that music's kind of seeping into their lives. Is it, does your son have a band? Am I imagining that or something like that? He's got a band. All right. Yeah. Okay. It's, right. Right. It's just, it's his big passion. Yes. Like, you, you can't, you can't write that kind of stuff. I can't believe that happens. You know, that is very cool. Oh, it's, uh, it's really, really fun to see Grant and I get a kick out of it. I mean, he's obviously been very influenced. I would say particularly by Grant because his yes. band is, is a yes. kind of like a, <laughs> kind of a punk rock and roll band. Um, but they're, they're and I know I'm a parent, but they're actually legitimately like a really they're good. They're actually quite good, and they just recorded their first seven inch vinyl. No way, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're having a. Um, their album release party next month and like these kids the other thing is these kids have draw yeah yeah because anyone that wants to come to their concert needs an adult to come to like it's just that's cool they, okay they, so what what kind of clubs where would this happen in i know vancouver you know a little bit over the years but what, what where kind of location or is this we at the school or something or where would they play their first gig was at the school talent show but they they quickly um graduated to playing this kind of kind of underground venue right in our neighborhood called Green Auto. Okay. And cool. they sold they like sold like 175 tickets to it uh. for like 10 bucks <laughs> each. And then they used the profits of that to record their seven inch. So and that this next gig that's coming up is coming up at a place called Redgate um, on Main Street. And it's kind of like a it's a, it's just another like a small venue in, in Vancouver. You, you know, you mentioned being anointed sort of by Stuart at your wedding. I have this image of uh, your son playing his show and then maybe walking out through the center, almost like at, at a wedding. And then in the balcony, there's Nardwar standing there. The, well, the, the ultimate promoter of, of Vancouver yeah. uh, Indie Rock. He's like, I, I look down on you. I see it's good, you know. Yeah, we'll have to get Nardwar out for the next one. Uh, <laughs> Nardwar is, is um, definitely like a figure in... Um, our kids' lives. Oh, I yeah. bet. And um, so we'll, have to, <laughs> we'll definitely have to get him out at a show. He's not, he's like their rock and roll godparent, let's say. Yeah, just the, the history that when Grant and Narbor Young promoting all the, th all the stories, whether it's in his books or not. But, but that makes me think of a question. Okay, so Grant's writing books, 
you're you're recording, you're touring, you were just out in the US, you've done things all over. Um, is writing something that you've ever thought about? Or do you, I mean, do you have a book? Would you ever think about writing a book? Um, having lived with an author. <laughs> um, I, I, you know what? I don't know that I, I maybe. Never maybe. Ever. Okay, never believe it at me. But I think, I think that the way that I best express myself is like, I think I'm just going to keep making albums because yeah. when I like, I don't really keep a diary, but, um, but when, but when I want to go revisit my 20 something self or my teenage self, I can always go back to those albums and they're yeah. actually transportative in a way that the written word alone, I don't think would be in the same way. So I, I feel like I do kind of feel like my medium is, uh, is music, but Hey, Never say never. Okay, so so what that I totally understand that. Um, what what is the musical project that you're working on right now? Something that's coming out or will be coming in the next year or so. What's what what do you have? Yeah, well, it's actually it's about it's right around the corner. And, okay. Um, what it is is it's another French album. Great. That I have recorded. Um, it's a bit of a follow up to. Well, it is. A, it's kind of like a sequel, actually. I feel like this is my first sequel album. Okay. It's a sequel to the album that I made 10 years ago, which was called Chanson, which was my first French album. And it's a collection of my interpretations of classic French chanson, older French songs that, um, that I love and that I... I want to kind of breathe my own new life into. So this album is called Encore and it is coming out in June. Okay. Uh, but we're going to, you know, I think the first, the first song is going to be released in next month, I think end of next month, I believe. So yeah, we're, we're kind of getting all set to roll out this album and I'm very excited about it. It is, it is quite, um orchestral i i worked with the same producer i made chanson with drew jureka and he's an incredible uh orchestrator arranger grammy nominee he got nominated for his string work on dua lipa's album oh cool so yeah he's very accomplished and a wonderful musical partner of mine um going for many many years now you so know i made this album together we, you know, we talk about the, you know, coming from an indie background and even like an English Canadian background. One thing I'm not sure a lot of people that, that are not or may, like English Canada may not be aware how big music is in French Canadian culture and maybe French culture, but I know, you know, just for a fact, how much it's just a bigger part of life and people, they, they, they listen to more music, they buy more music coming from that indie background and doing some English records, did it blow your mind the first time you were really, uh, I'm assuming you do, you must do great shows, big shows in Quebec. And did it kind of really surprise you the first time you went in or were you really aware of, of that world? Yes. Everything you just said. Yes. Um, I absolutely adore my Quebecois audiences. There's just like, they're beautiful energy. Um, they're very generous generous of spirits and enthusiasm, um, little less reserved compared to the rest of Canada. And, uh, and then I also feel so privileged as an Anglophone Canadian to have really had the opportunity to tour and experience all parts of Quebec, Northern Quebec, like outside of Montreal, outside of Quebec city, like really get into some of these towns that feel very, not like the rest of Canada. Yeah. Feel yeah. very unique that feel like I like where I really kind of understood why um why so many Quebecois feel like they have a very distinct culture that needs to be preserved. Like it's just it's unique. It's different than than the rest of Canada and they um I I just have a lot of um a lot more understanding of, of I bet. 
I bet. Yeah. And that means you're about to get more because will you have uh, some serious uh, string of shows coming up in the fall in, in like yes. in Quebec or? Yeah. Yes, I will. Yeah. Um, some festivals this summer and then um, some more touring in Quebec in the fall. And then hopefully we're going to take this also outside of Canada too. We've got some stuff in the works. So I just remember touring through Quebec back in the day, particularly Quebec city. Um, and they were, they were always, it was always good, very good Montreal and Quebec city for sure for, for the inbreds. But there was something about the way that people responded to music, even our music uh, that made me want to learn of course, I learned French in school, but it made me want to learn French. And so I remember this is before. I don't know what what's the what's the current one people use to, uh, you know, the, all the apps you can get on your phone now. Before that, there was these cassettes, and I remember I, I fit one of our la- one of our tours. I got home and I said, I've got to learn French. I got to relearn conversational French. So I bought this set of cassettes, and I remember trying to practice at home. It, you know, I think you really have to be immersed uh, to really get good at it. But uh, I've, you know, that's how strong I felt about it, that I I had to try to um, get better, you know. There are so many um, tourists from Quebec in the county. You'd probably get some opportunities to speak French at the stand, I would think. You know, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, my lemonade stand in in the Saturdays in the summer there. The story is because I did my music festival at Sandbanks for a bunch of years there, right? And and by the way, thank you for playing County Pop, my other event. That was amazing. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, but but at Sandbanks, they uh, because it was you know kind of working with the park, they dropped the figure that fifty percent. They believe fifty percent of the people that visit that park in the summer are from Quebec. It's very well, big. On the playground, so, it's like yeah. um, there's so much French being spoken. Um, yeah, so I get it. Yeah, you're right. It, it, all the time at the stand, and um, it's everything from the fact that when I made my bottles, I made sure to do it's. Uh, you know, French and English on it, which hopefully is appreciated. And then, and I actually sell, I sell online. I have a shop if I store and I sell my bottled lemonade. And I would say the one place I sell the most is Quebec. There's something about lemonade in Quebec. It kind of like, it's like music. It's like, it's a, a weird outlier. And I, I ship, actually ship it to Quebec. It's very funny, but you're right. That? Yeah, it's great. And, and, but you're right. I get, do get the same feeling, which is because young families come up and I wish I knew more French but the difference, here's the difference, is that when I'm doing lemonade, it's often families and they want to learn English. And so they'll often send the like the young kids up to, and the, you'll see the parents standing back going, go ahead, go ahead. And then like, <laughs> and say, say, you know, like the, whatever, the niceties back and forth, please and thank you. Then yeah. that, so they actually don't want me to speak French, you know? So, okay. So that's, um, okay. I think it's been a really good conversation. I want to, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to sail this in for the, the final question, which is, um, you know, you're thinking uh, back to the early days. We've talked about all the music you've done. You're growing up in Port Credit. Uh, if you could go back and speak to young Jill after everything you've learned, and it seems to me you've got a lot more to learn still because there's so much music coming and good things for you. But if you were today, go back and speak to your younger self, what do you think you'd say to them? about making a life in music or just playing music or wanting to play music? I mean, it's funny you should say this, ask this question now because somebody just uh, tagged me on a photo that was taken of me 20 years ago today. Wow. Okay. It was a Valentine's Day show. Um, <laughs> and I don't know when this is going to air, but yeah, they, <laughs> this episode is being recorded on Valentine's <laughs> Day and someone sent me a picture of me performing at a show in St. John's, Newfoundland. Okay. We were 14, 2004. And so I thought, well, I'll post that along with like, like one of those, like, um, I didn't actually say this, but you know, it's like how it started and how it's going kind of thing. Yeah. 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 The kind of nice thing is it's just, I celebrate the fact that it's just, it's still going like, I, if, if you had told that 24 year old that I would be 44 and still up there singing my love songs, you know, doing my thing, touring from place to place, getting up on stage and, you know, I, I don't like, it seemed like a dream then it still kind of feels like a dream now. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know. I think Dave, I would just say, just keep doing what you're doing. Like you've got to do what you love. 
And um, I mean, I don't know if I would change anything or give any different advice. Like, I feel like the, what I'm really, I don't know, I sometimes people that are that age now ask me for advice and I honestly don't know what to tell them because the game has changed so much. The landscape has changed so much that I know I'm not an expert. I, I have no idea how you start a career in music this day and age. But back then I, I just like, I just, I would like hang posters on telephone poles and I would drop off my album to the media outlets that existed. And I would go to the open mic nights and I would just like try to get in front of as many people as I could and play my songs and make friends like with the guys in winter sleep and on dependent music and, and, you know, get it. I like, I just, it's just like, you just, I just felt my way through it. And I'm so grateful that, um, you know, I'm so grateful I didn't go into another career that wasn't my real passion because I was too afraid. So I don't know. I, I mean, is it too smug or, or egotistical to say I don't have any advice other than just keep doing what you're doing because, you, you know, it's going to be okay. That was the song Chances from 2008's album by the same name, Chances. And earlier in the episode, we heard the uh, early 2000s embryonic live track at the Grad Club for the song In the Road. And uh, uh, what a great uh, episode. What a great uh, collection of stories and Jill's story itself. Uh, it was really great to talk and connect on all these different uh sort of points of connection we have going through the years. And the reason I chose Chances, I think, is because, again, I spent a lot of time uh, in and around those early indie days, and I don't know how much a lot of um, maybe Jill's current fans or supporters have awareness of her her indie roots, uh, but they're very legit and very cool. And uh, like I said, it was great to get into the detail there. And uh, the first time that I heard something like Chances, I was like, just blew my mind. So... You see that development and you see that story that continues today and her new record coming very soon. So I encourage you to uh, definitely pick that album up and uh, she's going to be having shows all over. So as always, make sure you support uh, Jill if you get a chance to go out and see her live, buy her music, buy her merch. And uh, one final thank you, Jill. Uh, That was a, a very happy Valentine's Day. So thanks for being part of it. See you next time. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunior.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made Sitting pretty in the 
without the trouble of drinking drinks and shots and doubles. He said, Hark, I'll make it sparkle. And he added stuff to make it bubble. Lemonade day. Like the sparkling lemonade. If it's hot, I'll get a bottle. Even if it's not, I'll get a bottle, that is.